Um, there was a Japanese Soto Zen teacher called Koda Sawaki Roshi who once said, Zazen is useless. And um, this is a nice introduction to the uh, whole idea of, um, in Soto practice, the idea of no gain. And um, this idea of Zazen being useless is, I guess, um, precisely why we need to sit. Um, you know, we use words in Zen to try and express the inexpressible. And um, we have all different names for the true self or the no self. And, um, So, and there are all different ways of coming at it as to try and how we illuminate this using words. Now there's the famous um, dialogue which I've probably told you about before between the, uh, the master who inquires with the student as to what's the student's intention of doing Zazen and the student says to become a Buddha and then the master, you know, picks up the tile and starts to, you know, polish the tile. And the student says, "Why are you polishing the tile?" And the master says, "I'm trying to make a mirror." And the student says, "Well, how can you make a mirror from polishing the tile?" And the master says, "How can you become a Buddha by practicing zazen?" Is getting to the same point that. Um, Whenever we come at our practice from the place of feeling as if we're lacking something and we need to get something, we're immediately not quite hitting the mark. Um, we're hitting the mark more in that sort of sense or whatever it means to you when we kind of like totally forget ourselves and we just focus into whatever the practice is, whether it's just following the breath or open awareness or counting the breath or practicing move, whatever it might be we do, um, there's a certain amount of effort that's required in terms of sitting relatively still. There's a certain amount of concentration, hopefully not too much, but enough to keep us coming back to our practice and remembering to come back. And and being like, but it's, it's, it's really easy to step into a kind of grasping or uh, expecting or wanting something for us to somehow get something from our practice. And this is the uh, idea of gaining ideas. And I guess the biggest gaining idea that most of us get somewhat uh, caught into and uh, is the whole idea of enlightenment and um, you know, the whole idea of enlightenment is probably the biggest gaining idea in the sense that that's what yeah, we're, all, we're all wanting to be enlightened, that's what we don't have. And um, you know, enlightenment's just a thought. Um, and from the perspective of Soto Zen, we sit 
to embody and express the Buddha we already are, the enlightenment we already are. And um, so I guess in our practice the, there is somewhat some kind of attending to the, the tile or the slate in the sense that we're wanting to clean the slate of any gaining ideas that we have. So as part of our practice, either when we're on our cushions or whether it's during our everyday life, really paying attention to these gaining ideas. And uh, a gaining idea is obvious, kind of like the inverse of the sense of which we feel like we're, we're lacking something, that we're not good enough or, and, and that can manifest in all different ways, whether it's through anxiety, shame, fear, etc., etc., anger. Um, and uh, I'm paying attention to when we get identified with those different uh, emotional reactions to the sense that somehow, you know, we don't have what we want and we're not. And, uh, and then as soon as we awake to that, then we can come back to practicing just being with being with the breath, being with the body sensations, being with this moment without any attempt to fix it or change it in any way. The Soto Zen practice, the idea of just sitting, I think it's a, it's a, it, it really goes against the grain of how we've been brought up in our culture. Um, you know, our culture being very a capitalist culture and a very competitive culture is often all about gaining things. And, and that's, you know, usually about external things to begin with, whether it's a house, a car, a job, a career, a degree, whatever it might be, a partner. Um, and then we, we can apply the same kind of conditioning to our inner life in the sense in which we try and fix up our inner life to to get something or gain something we don't feel that we have. But essentially the, the no-self of Zen or the true self of Zen always is and always has been, always will be. Um, if you like you can, you know, in the Heart Sutra it talks about um, form and formlessness or you can think of boundlessness and this boundlessness is, I guess, you can think of as of energy, I guess, or self-energy, the sense in which who we truly are can never be lost, can never be taken away, can never, the sense in which it can never be hurt, can never be damaged. Um, um, and uh, the degree to which we suffer is how we get, um, we just don't experience that because we get attached to the parts, we get attached to, um, we, 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 we um, take the part to be the whole and, and then we get out of balance and we don't see the whole, we don't see the completeness, we just identify with the part and the part that could be, could be some form of pain, some form of fear, some kind of anxiety or it could be some sense of achievement or whatever. And, um, and uh, these are all the, the this, this is the merry-go-round, the changing scenery of life, which is changing all the time. And, um, but we are also it that changes. And it's kind of like, that's the, it's the it. 
which is the no-self or the true self, which is constantly changing form all the time, which is who we truly are. But it's, it's easy to talk about, but um, difficult to access sometimes. It's how we, and I guess, um, how we can access that, that sense of no-self in the midst of um, our daily life is the challenge of our practice. And the, uh, so sitting Zazen is not to become something we're not, but to just give ourselves some time each day to really remember who we, who we are and then to try and keep that remembering uh, going in our, in our day-to-day life. Um, so I'm just going to read a little story which I wrote a few months ago, which you might have read, but uh, it's called The Platypus and the Billabong. When my wife Annie and I leased a house in the Promised Land near Bellingham, we knew it was set on a beautiful five acres with magnificent views of the ranges and valleys. We also knew it was surrounded by native vegetation which attracted a wide variety of native birds. The views were so magnificent we renamed the verandas viewing platforms after the Japanese practice of sitting on moon viewing platforms and drinking sake. Viewing sunsets became a practice we regularly participated in. Our western viewing platform looked out across to a huge fig tree, prominent on my website that I fondly referred to as the Tree of Life. The property also contained a beautiful billabong fed by a distributee of the Never Never River that meanders gently through the promised land. The billabong was often still and quiet, except for the sounds of frogs and cicadas, and its water would reflect the surrounding trees, including some beautiful pale gums like a mirror. However, it was only after we had been living at the house for a couple of weeks that the owner informed us that there was a platypus who lived in the billabong. So this began Annie's daily routine, where she would walk down the steep hill to the billabong every day in the hope that she would be able to catch a glimpse of the platypus. Well, as some of you may know, the platypus is a very shy creature and is often hard to glimpse in the wild. It didn't surprise me that, although Annie had been going down to the billabong on a daily basis and sitting still and quiet for half an hour at a time. She did not glimpse the platypus. In fact, Annie began to doubt the story of the platypus. Coming from Scotland as a child, she was very familiar with the myth of the Loch Ness Monster. And she began to wonder if the supposed sightings of the platypus were not in fact myth of the same kind. However, she persisted in her regular daily sits And after a time, even though she did not see the platypus, she began to enjoy the stillness of the billabong and the sounds of the frogs, the beauty of the water lilies, and the kingfisher as it darted across the water. Sometimes she would hear a loud plop when she walked down to the billabong, and she thought maybe it was the platypus. But then she saw the old water dragon as it swam and then disappeared under the water. So the days went by, And although Annie did not see the platypus, she began to appreciate just sitting by the water, looking at the reflections in the watery mirror, and listening to the sounds of the varied creatures. 
Then one day, much to her amazement, she glimpsed the platypus. At first she thought it may have been the water dragon, but sure enough, the sighting was so close to where she was sitting, she saw the unmistakable duckbill and the tail as it plunged beneath the water, leaving a ring of ripples behind it. She breathed very softly and waited for about a minute, and then, sure enough, it surfaced like a submarine, stayed for about five seconds, and then submerged again under the water. Later that day, when I returned home from work, Annie's face was beaming with joy as she told me about her first sighting of the platypus. The next day, she went down to the billabong, full of excited expectation of seeing the platypus again. But even though she sat longer than usual, and even did three sits on that day, she did not see the platypus. But that memory of the first sighting meant that now she did have some faith and trust that the platypus did in fact exist and was not a myth. So she maintained her motivation and sat on the edge of the billabong every day. But her disappointment grew and she failed to see the platypus again and again. And although at times she felt like giving up, because the path to the billabong was steep, she persevered. Eventually, at times she would forget all about the platypus and would completely lose herself in the sights and sounds of the billabong. And gradually over time, she no longer sat with the expectation of seeing the platypus, but sat for the sake of sitting. And then one day, as she was sitting without expectation, there it was again, right up close and personal, very intimate. And it stayed for quite a while, diving and submerging, exploring the banks of the billabong for at least an hour. The next day, Annie went down again to the billabong, but this time, she sat without any expectation of seeing the platypus. And so it continued, right to this very day when I wrote this story. If the platypus surfaced, it was awesome. But gradually Annie began to appreciate the awesome wonder of the billabong, just as it was, even without the platypus. And so it continues to this day. The platypus hasn't been seen for a while. And so please just enjoy your sitting near the billabong and enjoy the sounds of the creatures.